We are the forgotten generation, a misplaced slice of the 20th century when birth rates were as low as expectations for the future. We lived under the threat of constant nuclear annihilation, playing outside, but always inherently knowing the future was indoors. We are the second half of Generation X. We were some of the first to play video games, program home computers, and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our generation was nourished by New Wave, Imperfect Punk Rock, and John Hughes movies. We built Web 1.0 from the ground up using our childhood 8-bit and 16-bit programming skills. They call us Gen X. We prefer the vertical blank generation, where magic happens between the lines, because that's where we live, love, and thrive. We are Generation Atari. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Steve. How's it going? It's the 40th anniversary of asteroids this month. The asteroids coin off. Oh, my God. I know. 40 years 40 of asteroids. Mother years. Excuse my French, but can you believe that? 40 years since you saw that beautiful glow of the vector That's screen a long time took a shot at an asteroid and was amazed by the fact that it blew apart into two two smaller asteroids and i mean yeah i mean it's it's amazing it's I'd amazing that, like, to me that that i mean that's the beginning of atari fandom for us and we we probably played it in 79 but i'm going to guess that most of our consumption was in 1980 yeah uh, 80 and then having the the brown boxed cartridge oh, for the twenty six hundred. Yes. Eighty one when we when we got it for yeah, Christmas amazing. But forty years. I mean, that's so. Ben S, who's one of our new uh, listeners and followers on um, Twitter, and listen to the podcast. He 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 actually announced that this morning. He turned his name on Twitter into Asteroid Turns Forty. So this is how I he reminded me of it. Well, that's um, awesome. So I asked him what his feelings were about asteroids, and this is what he wrote to me on Twitter. You want to hear? Sure, of course. Okay. I'll tell you what Ben has to say. He is like five or six different tweets. So because he had to get it all in. Okay. So first, neat. This is this is Ben S. Neat. I don't think I have any special insights. It's just one of the games, along with Centipede, where you can get pretty far by not moving. Hyperspace is the desperate escape button that can land you right back in danger and probably inspired the similar mechanic in Defender. I can't remember specifically where I played the arcade version as a kid. A neighbor on the main road had it in his garage in the late 80s, but I played the machine maybe once. Maybe, may have seen it on the Seattle Ferry in the 80s. Or is that Space Invaders? I just want to stop there. It, you know, getting those two mixed up actually in your mem memory is not, even though it's two different games, that's not a, a difficult thing to do because they both were like pioneering. Yeah, and um, at that age, they could have looked, they could have seemed very similar because they're both really were white graphics on a black screen. Yeah, and exactly. and very and there was a Star Wars element to it. If I want to, add. oh yeah, just like we. I mean, if we go through the whole Star Wars episode, I mean, it's all about how those games were basically us playing Star Wars. But I'm going to continue. Okay, go for it. 
Ben S. continues, the music is also worth mentioning, probably inspired by Jaws from a few years before and meant to add tension. The vector graphics are a callback to Space War, one of the earliest video games, but it made faithful home versions rare because most consoles were raster-based. And he continues, it's also interesting that the controls are all buttons. Defender was even more evil, oh, yeah. though, with a button to toggle your ship facing. Asteroids Deluxe apparently kept all the button scheme, but the home ports of Astro and Defender were more sensible out of necessity. Let's stop there really quick. He's absolutely right. The buttons on both those games, you had to be hardcore to play the buttons. And remember, we would we would do what we could to to make like the asteroid games on our computer stuff play with button controls so you did to play yeah we i would redefine the buttons on both megaroids on the st and on the atari 800 if i could uh, but uh, but at least on the st for sure on with megaroids i would redefine it so i could use the buttons because that was the only way i really knew how to play i didn't this the joystick way was difficult for me to use even on the 2600 because you would always when you're trying to turn you might thrust and that was always a problem yeah that's right okay he he, he's got a couple more uh being on the zennial end of the vertical blank asteroids space invaders etc were on their way down in popularity by the time i was in the arcades so i mostly knew them as home games most of my arcade experience was in the mid 80s through the early 90s and and zennial is 100 part of the vertical blank oh yeah oh yeah i mean that's the what we say you know right now Vertical Blade, second, second half of Generation X, but that sort of bleeds into um, into Millennials as well, which is cool. And, you know, I mean, awesome. we, we also liked, you know, had we also had Sega Master System and Sega Gen- Genesis like that, which is which is very much a millennial thing. Um, we and, played and, copious Nintendo games and, at, yeah. at our Ian's house. And, you know, yeah. we had a, we had we had um, we used all of the systems, you yes. know. Yeah. We were lucky enough to build I a... I think the one that intrigued me the most at the time was the TurboGrafx-16. But anyway, let's go back to Asteroids. Still want one. So anyway. so last year, we we did a two-part Asteroids uh, podcast last year. And we ran a story called Trek to the Asteroid Zone, which was, which is about all the times we would walk up to the grocery store to play Asteroids. It was a very significant time for us when we had to do that or when we did, did that. So I thought maybe we could run that right now in honor of the 40th anniversary. And then we could talk about it a tiny bit afterwards. I don't think we talked too much about it in our original pod. Yeah, there's an original of, podcast. Yeah. What, what do you think? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, do that. cool. Here we go. Escape to the asteroid zone. Part 1. The Trek. It was the summer of 1981, and I was obsessed with Atari. The actual mechanism for this obsession was not clear to me at the time. I just knew I loved video games, and the name Atari was synonymous with them. My brother and I had just finished fifth grade, and the dreaded junior high school was looming before us. The stories of sixth graders being trash-canned and given whirlies echoed through our heads. We did not have access to any Atari games at home, and the closest arcades were miles away. However, we did have one outlet for our video game madness, the grocery store shopping center located roughly one mile from our house. It was positioned at the edge of the city, 
just off the other side of the track's dividing line of our hometown Manhattan Beach, Sepulveda Boulevard. We lived on the wrong side of those tracks. Since this was still the early 80s, our parents felt sufficiently comfortable letting us roam the neighborhood without supervision. As long as we made it home on time, all would be okay. Plus, my parents were preoccupied in those days, so it was pretty easy to slip out and do our own thing unnoticed. We were inspired by the long walks we took with our mom when we were little and had no working car. Since Jeff and I also did not have bikes that could reasonably take us anywhere further than our own driveway, we made the trek from our house to our little video game mecca on foot. The trek started at our house on 1st Street. We'd start walking up our hill towards Peck Avenue, passing over acorn-infested semi-sidewalks under the eucalyptus awning created by the forest of trees that line the south side of the street. As we walked, we never failed to marvel at the rich family mansion that took up almost half the block. We rarely saw the people who owned that property, but the pools, tennis courts, European cars, and giant house belied a level of wealth and sophistication that we could hardly understand. It was a true estate that took up the space of four huge houses. The fact that it was located right next door to two dozen 50s-era suburban cracker boxes made it even more impressive. I always imagined what it was like to live like a rich person in a house that took up four lots of a suburban block. What do they have inside? I tried to peek through the trees when we walked by, but the place was always locked up tight with few signs of life. At the top of the hill, we crossed the street over to Penny Camp, our elementary school. At the East Playground entrance, we had to make a choice as to which way to go. Across the playground was the quickest route, but it also had its perils. We were never sure who might be on the playground, and since it was at least 300 yards in length of blacktop and grass, we might be left in the open with no real option for escape if a problem might arise. Usually, those problems came from one source and one source only. Curtis. He lived at the end of our block and was the bane of my existence. Curtis lived with his grandmother, and his lack of parental supervision was displayed in everything he did. My first introduction to Curtis was on my fifth birthday, when he came into our front yard and, for reasons known only to Curtis, threw a bicycle tire at my head, splitting open my right ear. Curtis tried to run down kids on his bike if they dared cross his path on the playground, pushed kids down in the street to prove his dominance, and stole anything he could get his hands on. He was a complete cliché of a bully, and would have been a joke if he wasn't such a real threat. If Curtis was around, going across the playground was not a good choice at all. However, finding him in the halls of the school was not a great option either. The best way to avoid confrontation with Curtis was to take the back route behind the school. There was an old cement path just south of the Penny Camp School Library that led past the community garden, then up over a steep hill. About a hundred feet up that hill, the cracked asphalt path ended at a chained and locked fence. However, the lock and fence were so old and had been climbed through so many times that any ten-year-old could easily slip through the gap and be on their way. Once through the fence, we walked into an actual wilderness up past an overgrown volleyball court and then through what looked like an abandoned cornfield before the path dipped down again into a steep incline. It ended at an ice plant hill that spilled out behind the school cafetorium. From there it was a short walk through the school parking lot to the street and relative safety on the other side. 
Since Curtis mainly confined his menace to the school grounds, we took a bit of cautious comfort as we turned south towards the high school. Next, we walked down a long hill towards an overgrown vacant lot that was known in the neighborhood as Pollywog because of the small swamp created from neighborhood runoff water. When we got to the entrance to Pollywog, we had to make another quick decision. The path through Pollywog cut off 10 minutes of our walking time, but also held the possibility of trouble. Sometimes the pond overflowed, the rickety bridges were vandalized, homeless people were hiding out, or stoners were smoking in the bushes. I never encountered Curtis there, but that was another distinct possibility. The other direction was a few blocks through suburban neighborhood, safe, but many blocks out of our way. Most days, we took our chances walking through Pollywog. Yes, it was the more dangerous choice, but there was an alternate reason for making the trek as long as possible through less traveled areas, finding returnable bottles. We always kept our eyes peeled for 7-Up, Bubble Up, or any other returnable bottles we could find. A couple bottles would equal enough money for one more play of a video game than the original contents of our pockets would allow. The dirt path through Pollywog winded through some bushes, then took a turn towards the swamp. At that point, the first major Pollywog obstacles laid in wait for us. The runoff stream from the street created a five-foot, sludgy gap in the path. If the makeshift wood bridge was in place, crossing was easy. But if not, and it usually was not, a leap of faith was required. The area surrounding the gap was covered with fallen and dirty eucalyptus trees. It was not easy to tell where the leaves ended and the water began. Even more distressing was the bed of mud that the leaves rested upon. A badly timed jump meant both our van shoes and our striped white tube socks would be covered in toxic sludge from the sewer runoff. A successful leap led back onto the dirt path that wound around the corner and into the exercise yard a sand pit and old basketball hoop of the local secondary school, Pacific Shores. Shores, as it was known, was a place where all the screw-ups ended up if they could not hack regular high school. And I say that in the nicest possible way. It was part of the regular school system and designed as a safety net for kids with problems. It had very relaxed rules about smoking, bell schedules, etc. It was a great asset to the community, but to a kid, it was scary as all hell. We did not want to run into any shore students on the trek. Who knew what the hell they were capable of? At the end of the plywog path, we had to climb a 30-foot, 45-degree angle dirt hill that deposited us on the pole vault training run of the Maricosta High School track. From there, we walked across the abandoned volleyball courts just to the south of another large community garden. This was another stoner hangout. We had to be extra careful as we trudged across to the relative safety of the baseball practice field. We'd hike across that field to the old forgotten basketball courts, then down a cement path to the baseball stadium. The baseball field was another place to be extra careful. The dugouts were notorious makeout spots, and the teenagers that inhabited them were not very happy to see 11-year-old kids disturbing their activities. However, the path through the bleachers and by the dugouts was a great spot to look for more returnable bottles, so we took the chance anyway. From there, we walked to the Little League field and took note of the joker who spray-painted Adam and the Ants on every conceivable flat surface. Why no one ever cleaned it up was beyond me. After exiting the baseball field onto the street on the other side of the school, 
we crossed through the Lutheran church grounds and then crossed another street to the alley behind McDonald's. We walked up through the alley, passed behind McDonald's, and into the strip mall just beyond. At this point, we breathed a sigh of relief. For all intents and purposes, we had arrived at our destination. If we had found any returnable bottles, we sold them back to the guys at Manhattan Liquors for a tidy little profit, always requesting quarters instead of dimes and nickels if we had collected enough along the way. Upon exiting the store, we took note of the Defender machine in the front. Defender was a hardcore game. It was well known at the time that a game like Defender was geared towards older kids who could manipulate the myriad of buttons on the control panel. Even if we wanted to play, Defender was notoriously monopolized by a couple of heavy metal dudes who insisted on filling the high score list with initials that spelled out Iron Maiden down the screen. Do you know what an Iron Maiden is? One of them asked me in a threatening tone one time as I stood behind them and watched them play. Uh, no, I squeaked out. Of course you don't, geek. Don't even think about messing up the high score table. We'll kick your ass. Point taken. It was not just us. They threatened anyone else who played not to mess up their work. We avoided Defender for this reason and continued west through the strip mall, past the Guild drugstore, which would one day hold another game that utterly fascinated me, Wizard of War, and crossed the parking lot to our final destination, Safeway Supermarket, and the asteroids machine contained within. Just to the right, as we entered through the automatic door of the Safeway supermarket, stood the jet-black arcade machine with a red, blue, white, and yellow depiction of a space battle emblazoned on the side, and a front-facing, backlit marquee that read, Asteroids, in large letters, with the word Atari in tiny type below. If there was another kid playing the game at the time, a quick check of the marquee to see if there were any quarters in waiting stuffed behind the metal border of the glass backing gave some idea of just how long we might be watching and not playing. After waiting our turn, Jeff would slip the first quarter into the machine as I fished out mine for a two-player game. The red two-player button started flashing. One of us pressed it, and we were off. Part 2. A House Divided After many years of what felt like, at least, childhood bliss, our little happy family hit an implosion point. It seemed like the events all came in a row, even though they were spread over several years. Their combined effect was inescapable. I think it all started in the autumn of 1978, when I woke up one morning hearing my mom crying on the phone. She was talking to her brother, my Uncle Richard. When she finally put the receiver down... She could hardly keep it together long enough to tell us what happened. My Aunt Pat and Cousin Greg were killed by a drunk driver in Santa Clara. One of my other cousins, Joe, had his legs crushed by the family Volkswagen van. My Uncle Richard, his wife Pat, and their nine kids were the only cousins I'd ever known. Our families were very close, and we spent a couple of vacations together and visited each other very often, even though we lived hundreds of miles apart. It all changed that morning. My mom, in particular, was inconsolable. The accident was an instant and huge crack inserted into the solid foundation of my childhood. Even though my mom had four kids of her own, her nine nieces and nephews were never forgotten. Some of them were well into their 30s at the time, but my mom still sealed an envelope 
with a card and a $5 bill and mailed it off in time to reach them by their birth date. Each birthday was dutifully marked on a disposable calendar that was attached with a pushpin to the wall behind her spot at the kitchen table. The car accident formed a tsunami of grief that swept over both families that even to this day has never lifted. For my mom, it stayed until the day she died. She was so dedicated to recognizing birthdays that even 40 years later, as I removed the final items from her kitchen after her death, I noticed that the birthdays for Pat and Greg were still recorded on the Dollar Tree cat calendar I bought her the previous Christmas. What I remember from this time in the 70s was the crying of my mom. At times, when it was just myself, my brother, and her in the house, she would cry uncontrollably. It would last for hours. They were deep, sorrowful sobs that belied a truth much deeper than the death of her nephew and her sister-in-law. Her parents' divorce, the death of her mom, the shattered expectations of her youthful dreams to become an actress, and her station in life as a housewife to what was amounting to a suburban insane asylum all seemed to tear her down. As a little boy, I couldn't stand to see my mom cry. What boy would? I just had no idea what to do about it. My mom was deep into her grief, maybe even obsessed by it. The next year, in 1979, my dad's father died of lung cancer. My dad had a very distant and adversarial relationship with his father, a semi-famous magazine illustrator. The death came suddenly, and it gave my father little time to make up lost ground and try to repair their broken ties. This sent my father into a tailspin of sorts, and he buried himself into his work and distanced himself from his family. He worked late and on weekends to get overtime pay, but instead of using that money to help his family, he spent it on his new hobbies like motocross racing and metal detecting. My dad broke his collarbone in a motorcycle race in 1980, and this saw him go even deeper into his own world. At the age of 54, he could no longer put on his motocross outfit and pretend to be the kid he never was. Thus, a new obsession began. The sign started that previous Halloween. My dad said he wanted a Civil War hat. I was excited because I had seen one at the Guild Drug in the stacks of Halloween costumes. I knew what a Civil War hat looked like after pouring through the American Heritage Golden Book of the Civil War so many times, I knew each battle painting by heart. My dad went straight up to the Guild Drug and bought the hat, but afterwards he was sorely disappointed. The hat looked nothing like what he wanted. He wanted the kepi he saw in a store from his youth, the genuine one in a store window for $5 that he passed up and kicked himself about ever since. The one he bought that Halloween in 1980 was cheap, phony, foo-foo crap. I'm not sure what he expected for $10 at the Guild Drug. The event set a weird tone on our house. My dad, at 54 years old, had finally reached the age where nostalgia was no longer a cute memory of old times, but instead an ever-pressing need to recapture the past before it was too late. My brother and I soon found ourselves dragged along to gun shows, where my dad could try to purchase military artifacts from dealers that came across the USA. As soon as he purchased his first genuine Indian war kepi, he was a goner. Motorcycle racing was mostly a thing of the past, and a new obsession started. But this one was different. No longer was he showing up his dad by racing motorcycles. Now he was searching for the past, a quest that could never fully be resolved. At first, these were simply distractions, but as the years dragged on, they became all-consuming. As he got deeper and deeper into his projects, the infrastructure of our house crumbled. Windows, lights, doors, floors, ceilings, electricity, and pipes all wore out and were first bandaged and then abandoned instead of being fixed. 
At just about the same time, my older sisters were getting into the burgeoning local punk rock scene. Their reasons for rebellion, obscured then, are obvious to me now. They were stuck between our distracted and obsessed parents and a lower middle class lifestyle that made our family stand out embarrassingly in our ever gentrifying neighborhood. My sisters began staying out late on school nights, traveling to Hollywood to see their friends play the clubs and hang out in the scene. Identifying as punk became their own obsession. As punks, they could stand out, but also fit in with a certain class of people. I admired them for it. At the same time, though, they defied any and all rules our parents set down about their behavior. In 1980, our house became a loud and uncomfortable place to be, where nobody heard anyone, nobody listened, and everyone increased their volume, hoping that others would understand them. My mom, in particular, would argue with my sisters, and they were only obliged to argue back. It was about this time that the police began showing up. The visits didn't always coincide with an episode. They could be an hour or even days later. The knock would come at the front door, which we hardly ever used. One or two men in blue, looking pensive, sporting stereotypical mustaches. They'd say there was a noise complaint or ask if everything was okay. It always was, according to my mom. The battles were psychological. My mom would assure them that all was fine and promised to help keep the noise down. Unfortunately, it was not really under her control. I started to fear knocks at the front door and the sight of the police even more. But out of all this, something weird and magical happened. With our family no longer on solid ground, a new idol rose and became my fascination. The fascination had been brewing for many years, but in the summer of 1981, it became a full-blown obsession. The name of that obsession was Atari. It's clear now why this happened. My mom was obsessed with her grief, my dad obsessed with recapturing a childhood he never had, and my sisters obsessed with punk rock. My brother and I needed to follow suit. Since we'd been trained by Star Wars that people, not technology, were the enemy, and we were proto-nerds who liked to make our own games in the garage, we were drawn to the idea of a futuristic-sounding company like Atari, a company that shipped amazing video game amusements to our local storefronts on a regular basis. I found myself looking for the Atari name everywhere. Whenever I saw an arcade video game, I looked at the top of the marquee, hoping to see an Atari logo. If I did, I knew it would be a good game and worth my quarter. I'd look for the Atari VCS at stores like Montgomery Ward, Sears, and Target, hoping to get a glimpse of the logo or steal away a game on a test machine. This is how I coped with reality. I put my faith into something bigger, and that thing was Atari. As Atari became my obsession, it became my twin brother's obsession too, and the quickest and most successful manifestation of this obsession was the Asteroids machine at the front of the Safeway at the corner of Prospect and Sepulveda. It was an escape into another reality. Part 3. The Zone My brother and I stood next to each other, looking at the machine. Jeff took the controls first, and I waited just off to the side. I silently cheered him on. There was little competition between us when it came to video games. The asteroid game began with the menacing backing music. A simple duh, 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 was too similar to the theme from Jaws to be just an accident. 
Its tempo was slow but foreboding. It warned of danger to come, first in the form of asteroids, but later as faceless UFOs with one mission to totally wipe you out. Space rocks emerged from the sides of the screen as the gods of this inescapable black hole gave some serious thought as to when to let your ship appear as to not have you die an instant death. The appearance of your ship was sudden. If you were not born out of the womb of the space warp rapidly tapping the fire button immediately, you had little chance to survive. Jeff was always the better player than I, and he started nearly every game the same way. He watched as the rocks moved slowly across the screen. He timed the shots of his little space wedge perfectly so that the asteroids would explode just after passing his ship. When he used the thrust button, it was careful and deliberate. He'd apply a bit of thrust, then turn to the side to blast some rocks, apply a bit more, and turn again. When the last rock on the screen was blown into little vector bits, the sly smile on my brother's face hinted at satisfaction. For him, clearing a screen of space rocks was immensely rewarding. It was the kind of mastery over our own world we both were so hungry for that summer of 1981. However, shooting all the asteroids was not a direct pathway to success. Usually on the second or third wave, my brother cleared the screen down to just a few rocks, but instead of finishing, he waited for the UFOs to appear. The lumbering large UFOs were very easy to pick off. A few well-timed shots would take them out, netting hundreds of points and a good boost towards an extra ship at 10,000. Tougher were the small UFOs. They arrived with the whine that came from their engines that punctuated the bleeping space battle. The bounty on their lethal heads was a staggering 1,000 points. However, without a good strategy, their quick movements and killer marksmanship skills were hard to avoid. Most times, no matter how hard Jeff tried, he inevitably hit a rock or was blasted into space debris. My playing style was much simpler than Jeff's. Don't move. Turn, fire, turn, fire, turn, fire, turn. Movement meant the semi-realistic physics of 2D space would take over, making control almost impossible for me. However, movement was a much better choice than the button of last resort, hyperspace. Hyperspace, supposedly an option to help with survival, was, in reality, a button born of pure, concentrated evil. After pressing the button, you were sent to a random place in the black starless void of asteroids, with a good chance your ship would simply blow up on re-entry. When most of the rocks were destroyed, I would venture out a bit, applying thrust, but attempting to keep control of my ship. However, many times I lost control, smashing into an asteroid and losing my turn. What Jeff and I longed to achieve was entry into the asteroid zone, a place we had only seen in the eyes of master asteroids players, but rarely visited ourselves. In that zone, players would rack up huge scores by flying up the screen at a rapid pace, blasting small UFOs for a thousand points each, earning droves of extra ships, and then turning the game over at a hundred thousand points multiple times. The guys who were able to achieve this were inevitably much older than us. So much older, it seemed, that we would never be able to make it on our own. However, after many trips to Safeway and many quarters placed in anticipation up on the asteroid's marquee, we slowly gained the ability to play at a fair, if not respectable level. The few times either of us did get into any type of asteroid zone, it was a wonder to behold. With one lonely rock moving, hopefully, vertically through space, 
and the ship traveling at blinding speed up the screen, leaving a satisfying phosphorescent glow in its wake. We hunted for any saucers that might make the mistake of entering our small closed-off space. As the anticipation mounted, the soundtrack pounded in the background. Periodically, slight adjustments to the horizontal position of the ship were made as to avoid a disastrous collision with the last space rock on the screen. All of a sudden, the pulsating soundtrack would be broken by the high-pitched squeal of a UFO that had entered the perimeter. Slowly moving the ship left to right, you fired a few test shots before attempting the UFO kill shot, hitting thrust, releasing, then turning the ship left to right depending on the location of the UFO and spitting out a few shots in its direction. If the UFO was close to one side or the other, shooting shots that wrapped around to the other side of the screen was the most effective strategy, but this was rarely the case. After firing, you had to adjust the speed and horizontal position of your ship ever so slightly, lest the UFO could lock into your location and blast you from space. The exhilaration of hitting a small UFO and blasting it into component bits of light while still keeping control of your little ship to continue the fight was a feeling that, to this day, is still difficult to describe if you have not done it yourself. Of course, it was short-lived. When a UFO suddenly shot the ship out from under your control, it was like hitting a brick wall driving 100 miles an hour. Your tiny little ship would stop in place, all physics removed from the equation. There, in the blackness of space, would break into a few small pieces, then fade from existence. The sudden loss of adrenaline was indescribably shocking. Destroying your last little rock was only a slightly better experience. After ship hunting for such a long time, it was a very difficult transition to go back to merely shooting a screen full of large lumbering asteroids. Breaking out of the zone was a very quick way to end the game. No matter how many ships left in your arsenal, Getting back into the zone twice in one game, at least for me, was a very rare occurrence. Being in the zone was a feeling of pure transcendence. The real world meant nothing in those moments. All the crying, the hopelessness, rebellion, yelling, fights, and visits from the cops did not exist there. It was a purely fictional game world, a one-screen void that was invaded by an ever-increasing onslaught of space debris that needed to be wiped out in order to preserve our very survival. Yet, it was one that I fully embraced because I could, at least for a few fleeting moments, be successful there. It was an experience dreamed up by a guy named Lyle Rains and programmed by a guy named Ed Logg for a MOS 6502 processor and displayed on a patented Atari XY vector monitor. It was a feeling that only now, 37 years later, I can describe truly as entering the vertical blank, a place between the lines where nuance and nostalgia transcend reality itself and let me truly escape. When Jeff and I got down to our last couple quarters, we knew that this part of the trek was over. Sometimes we shared a final game with one of us playing the first ship, the next guy the second, and the person who fared the best getting the last. After that, we'd take whatever chains we had left over, buy a couple eight-cent store-brand sodas at Safeway and a handful of two-cent candy from the jars at the Guild Drug. We'd then pack our supplies and start the long trek home. As we walked back, our conversations would boil over with our exploits of playing asteroids. But after a while, we'd drift to baseball, girls at school, or the games we were going to play in the driveway when we got back home. We'd talk about Star Wars and what we wanted for Christmas, and if there was a chance for an Atari 2600 in our future. The trip home was always shorter and more direct. We cut through the high school or the church, but the pace was quicker, 
even if our final destination was not as interesting as the one we had left. We needed to get home before the streetlights came on, as was the deal with our parents. A spit and handshake agreement that nearly all kids at the time made in some way, but was even more important for us, as we desired to add nothing more to our mom's existing burdens. She need not add us to her list of worries. As we approached home, the asteroids machine at the Safeway Shopping Center faded into distant memory. What seemed so important just an hour or so before was almost inconsequential as the realities of home became clearer and clearer. Curtis could be around any quarter. A pitched yelling mash could be taking place inside our house, or something even more terrible could have happened while we were away. After a few days, Jeff and I started talking about asteroids again, and within a week or two, we would have enough money saved to make the trek to the Safeway Shopping Center once again. With any luck, we'd soon be in the asteroid zone once more, and at least for a few drifting moments, nothing else in the world would matter. Jeff, do you remember that walk? I remember that walk very distinctly. I, I can I know the, the whole route in my head. It's just all those places are gone now. Yeah, I know. If you, I, it's, it's true. Like if you walking up the street, the school, the swamp, the high school, um, I don't think there's an inch of that path that's the same. There's possible... But changed and sealed off. So you can't even go through the school anymore. All the schools are shut down. So you can't even make that a path. So you, there's no way to even hide from the bullies if they even exist now. You'd, you'd have to be right out in the street. What I was trying to say was the innocence of the time when all the schools were wide open so we could find a path through the various schools, not having to go on the streets. Is yeah, basically... I mean, that's something that we didn't really hit on. And I don't know if we maybe there'll be a time we, when we can do it. But the fact that um, I think maybe in our Tron episode, we can talk about i mean because we would go after tron we'd go up to the school and play tron on our bikes all the time but the idea that like the schoolyard and the school hallways that was that was where most of our imaginations were you know unfurled you know all sorts of games we played there that now kids don't have the chance to do that at all just all the schools around here are completely locked down there's no way to even go onto the fields on the weekend which which i find incredibly depressing it's really sad actually up until a few years ago i would take the boys up and we would play basketball or soccer or something on the field but you can't do that anymore. It's at, they, it's all locked down. Um, I can't take them through the halls and show them where my kindergarten room was or anything like that. It's just completely locked down. Yeah, I understand I, why. Yeah, I understand why. It's just it's just really disappointing. I don't know though. How much more dangerous is it now than it was when we were kids for the schools to be open? Like I think that they just spent. I think the fact that they would have to at the end of every weekend have to paint over some graffiti or something some kid did or f- fix something that was broken or, or pay extra insurance for people using the swing set on the weekend, you know, when they weren't in school. I think all those things come up to schools having so 
little money in their budget, they have to make sure they conceal all those things off. I, I think those are the reasons more than anything else. And obviously, they lock the schools down during the day more because of the violence that's happening brought into the schools by yeah. shooters and obviously, things like that. That's crap. That's that's you know. But I'm just talking about the weekend. But I get it. I mean, they get people to think that it's not really a place to go. I mean, that maybe that's just the just a psychological. How many times do you think we made that walk from our house up to the that shopping center with the asteroids and the McDonald's and stuff? Well, specifically like that? there, that walk to just to, to that destination, hundreds. Some yeah. with mom. Some with you, just you and I, you know, some with Eric Barth and Wesley, some with Evan Pershing, you know, oh, um, yeah. later. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah, we, 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 I mean, it, was, it was many, many, many times. And it was a general thing. If we had some change in our pocket, we were going to head up there and whether we were going to buy candy or play games in the in the foyers of the grocery store and liquor store and stuff you know we we're gonna do something it was kind of our mecca to go or buy do star anything. wars cards buy star wars cards i think that the um the place where we played asteroids we might have talked about this in the last one but just to reiterate i mean it's i think asteroids is either now that exact spot is either a coffee bean and tea leaf or haircutting place we get a haircut so where we played the video games probably is a uh, uh was a fantastic sans now it's just an independent haircutting place and where we um, bought the uh, Kragmont soda and the chocolate pies. That is definitely inside the coffee bean and tea leaf. Right, in that same spot there. So, yeah, I mean, can you believe? I mean, I can't believe it's, it was 40 years. In, and we, we did that walk before that, too, um, before Astros. Before, for, for many before years. video games. I and mean, we right, did it before. from we were like three years old. We would make that walk with our sisters. I kind of missed that time. I kind of missed that that era of you being you you walking into a store. What's kind of cool was that you would walk into store almost anywhere, and it was kind of a like a lottery ticket about what games were going to be in the front. Of the, you know, right. what when you see something new, something you liked, you know, um, you know, is it going to be a Moon Patrol or a you know a Gorf? Uh, Wizard of War, or something like that. Something, something you know, kind of exotic compared to the the main you know standbys. Yeah, it was like whoever was doing that route would it would it take the games in and out, and they had a pretty good deal going, and they knew what was what made money. So you know that's why the asteroids stayed there a long time. So did the Wizard of War, but you know uh, Star Castle as well. Star Castle did stay. What I'm saying, but some other ones would come in and leave right yeah. away. Uh, not too far later on, it was the uh, it wasn't Hyper Sports. It was the other one, Track and Field. Yeah, Track and that's right, and the Tempest and a bunch of other stuff. I was you know obviously you reminisce about those days because that's what we do on this stupid podcast. But you know it is there is something also to be said about the fact that just the idea that we would walk up there um, and then we were on our own and we were sort of fending for ourselves, even though it sounds so like at the time it didn't feel like it. At the time it felt like considering the stories dad would tell us about what he did when he was a kid, you know, like it, it, it seemed, tame, it seemed right? very tame. Like, you know, we're just, you know, and I remember even at the time thinking, wow, I, w I really wish I lived at a time like dad where we were doing all this sort of dangerous kids stuff and you know and not realizing that compared to now you know we were we were daredevils <laughs> I mean, we did, yeah you know and it doesn't and i'm not only i'm saying that kind of jokingly because we weren't but compared to now we were i mean um right i mean the yeah. I mean, we jumped though we jumped our bikes and stuff off oh of yeah we though, jumped you know, our bikes off you, everything you and i and wes and and here we even tied 
stupidly tied things together and made wagon trains going down hills and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that was about this time, too. That was about, well, no, this was a year earlier. I mean, I, I feel like that trek means more than just, you know, the trek for us. It's like kind of symbolizes actually a, a totally different era 40 years ago when kids could go do that and and not, you know, and it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, I we mean, could walk a mile each way yeah. without it being a big deal, it without was. having to call anyone um, no one was checking up. You know, the time moved a lot slower. I yeah, I mean, those say. trips probably were three or four hours. And yes, the time moved. It was, you know, I do miss that too. That's one of my big things that I miss is time moving slowly. And I know when you get older, time moves fast. And there's, it doesn't, that time, that your perception of time moves fast. You can't change that. But just the idea that, you know, the lack of responsibility added to the, you know, sort of lack of things to do led to, you know, a three to four hour trek to pop 50 cents into an asteroid machine and, and try to do as good as we could before we picked up a, a soda and a, and a chocolate pie and walked home. <laughs> yeah. And the, what I mean by yeah, and that the, was a good day. Of, that was a good day. Yeah, that was a good that was a good day. That mm -hmm. was and it, you know, a summer day, especially doing that would, would that would have been a good day. Yeah, I think, and even even about the school, I know we, we get on. I mean, some of my some of my best memories are laying on the schoolyard grass and listening to the airplanes fly over, and yeah. and thinking about like that was a time when you just you could imagine. I remember the smell of the grass because it was usually just cut, and. There were all since we lived relatively close to the to a couple of airports, you would always hear airplanes flying over, just adding to the the atmospheric sound in the back. And I think, and then you know, just imagining what what we do when we grew up. You know, I didn't imagine I'd be doing this, whatever I'm doing right now. Talking imagine, about sitting on the grass. Didn't imagine I'd be <laughs> making a podcast talking about growing up and laying down on the grass. Now, didn't didn't think well, that would happen. You know, um, it would be worse. I don't know if you're worse or better. You could tell me if we didn't live so close to that, because now I can see the change. Like if I came back and saw the change once every 10 years to be different, but I've actually seen it morph over, yeah, I over think, the last 40 years. So I think I do think about that too. And I, I don't, I know people probably already turned off this podcast at this point because it's really not interesting, but <laughs> That's okay. I'm going to say, say something. So yeah, I, I wonder, I do wonder if we had left this area and come back, if it would be easier because what we've seen, scene basically is a very slow motion decay over time right if things changing flashier but not better you know people going away right well the not returning i would say the, it, it hasn't decayed in the traditional sense of there has actually gotten better right? no like, no it's it nicer. looks better but our memories and all the things we remember have decayed into yeah i mean i don't know i mean else. i mean this you know since this is this is not a small town it's sort of a suburb and so things change fairly often and there's kind of little regard for what came before but i mean there are there's certainly like hardly any streets where the vistas are the same and i just wonder if it would be easier to take if we had if we'd moved away to, and if we just stayed the whole time probably need to ask someone who's moved away and come back yeah probably do you remember, Steve, do you remember getting the Atari 2600 version of Asteroids? I do. Yeah, the day after we got our Atari 2600 in 1981, we got it after we went to Gemco and and exchanged the one, that, the Atari 2600 that didn't work. Right. Now, so we got it. We went, it, it was the, it was basically 1982 when we got it. It was an, it was the late end of 81. Uh, that was, that was any 
eternity in kid years of that time. We're talking about the slow time. It was an eternity. Oh, it was absolutely. before we could play asteroids in any form at home. Yes, yes, Jeff, an absolute eternity to actually get it and play it. It was, it was, it took took a long time. And I love that version too. I thought that um, that, that I was not disappointed by that asteroids version. Played the hell out of that version. Hey, so um, so we haven't we haven't talked about this in a while. In one of our early podcasts from this season, I, we said, "Hey, would it be cool if by the by the end of season two we had ten ratings and five reviews?" And as of like last week, we have ten ratings and five reviews on I- iTunes. Nice. All of our ratings are five stars because you you, you only get five or or one star reviews on podcasts. So thank you to everybody who gave us five star reviews but there are some actual reviews people have written and i'm going to read one of them or a couple so this is from batari i think it is awesome podcast one of my absolute favorite podcasts the stories and memories are a joy to listen to while i did not grow up in california i was a midwest kid i can so easily relate to the stories and nostalgia bring back so many fond memories of life in the 80s or more accurately life in the vertical blank that's cool so people people actually use our nomenclature which is which is Kind of That's neat. awesome. Now, I'm hoping that that it, wherever he came from or she, but um, that their schools are locked down now too, and they can't go if they, if they share the same memory. But yeah. actually, I'm not going to say I hope. I hope their schools aren't locked no, down. No, I hope they're not. Locked they down. can bring their kids there and play. What I mean is, I wonder if that's a common. What if that's a common thing that that happens to? Yeah, their wonder, maybe too. maybe people can tell us if people listen to this. They can tell us like it'd be interesting to find out if their schoolyards are shut down and if they can go there with their kids and stuff. Here's another review. From Cruiser 11. I think you know who this is. But I think I know who that is. Trip down memory lane. I'm proud to say I grew up with these guys, so this may seem biased. However, I'm not writing this because they are my friends, but instead because these stories about Atari and their family, especially their dad, are amazing. I was lucky enough to get to know the whole family, and these stories bring fond memories of my childhood. Their dad was so fun, and I remember spending many hours in Castle Park with Jeff and Steve and him. He was so happy observing his sons having fun. Thank you guys for taking so much time to document what I consider some of the best times of my life. I haven't heard every episode yet, but I am hoping that there is some serious time dedicated to some of the good times outside of video games for example kick the can the awesome gun show and the epic over the line games with golf balls keep up the good work you two well i've uh, i'll say um we we do plan to cover even more of that stuff it's just that we do we have mentioned each of those a little bit but we should cover them that's wesley cruz by the way the, the gun shows especially because we did pick up i think don't, cartridges of the yeah gun we shows. did i i think the whole gun show thing is really in- interesting as well so um thanks wes and thanks to batari and everyone else who's written a review it's really cool. Congratulations to Asteroids, I guess. <laughs> um, hey, Jeff, who, uh, before we go, who who programmed and designed the original Atari Asteroids arcade game? We need to thank Lyle Rains and Ed Log and Dominic Walsh. Cool. So thank you, guys. Yeah, we'll be back soon with another episode. Sounds good. Where are we are we leaving the vertical blank now, Steve? We're leaving the vertical blank. Well, at least we're leaving the asteroids portion. We're leaving the journey to the asteroid zone. Into the vertical blank, Steve. Into the vertical blank. Next frame calculated, 
Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.